All right, if you will, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. Feel free to grab one and follow along. Um, we have a lot of uh, Bible to cover, so I'm going to start by reading, and then we'll pray and get right into our message. So our passage starts in John, chapter 8, verse 31, and we'll be reading through the end of the chapter. John 8, verse 31 through 59, it says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. Your father did. Excuse me. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time you've given. We just pray that we're able to Be still, know that you are God, that we know that it is you who has spoken these words, penned by man, and they are for our edification, 
they are to point us to Christ, to show us who he is so that we may believe in him and have eternal life. God, we are so thankful for all of scripture that you have given because it is profitable for us as your people to be taught, rebuked, reproved, and trained in righteousness so that we can be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, our prayer today is that as your word goes forth, it does not return to you void, that is planted in good soil and produces good fruit amongst your people. Uh, God, if anyone here today does not know you, we pray that they hear your word going forth and they cry out that God is truly in this place, uh, that they bow their knee to you as, as Lord and Savior of their life. Uh, and, and for those of us who have called upon your name, we pray that you continue to do a work in us, reminding us of your goodness, uh, of our shortcomings, and how we need you in every aspect of our lives. This is our prayer, and we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, church. So, um, title of the sermon is A Good Life. Pastor last week preached a sermon called A Good Death. I kind of figured I'd keep it in the same vein. I'm not typically good with titles, so I just, you know, it's kind of easier to do something like that. But, you know, titles usually like the last thing, and Jenny can tell you it's kind of like Friday mornings when I'm giving it to her before she's about to print them. Um, so anyways, that, there's that. But as I was going through this passage and reading and studying, meditating on what's going on here, uh, kind of had a difficult task, I believe, with all of that's going on in here. We have 29 verses. There's a lot of discussion between Jesus and the Jews, and a lot, a lot can be discussed here. But uh, my task today is to try to find that central theme uh, of what's going on within these verses. And I do believe uh, through the course of my study that, that I've come to that conclusion. Now, what I believe Jesus is, is telling us the purpose of this passage is he's calling out those holding to a false profession of faith. To say that another way is he's calling out those with a counterfeit faith and how it expresses itself in disobedience. I want to repeat that. He's calling out those with a counterfeit faith and how it expresses itself in disobedience. The way this passage is laid out is kind of from the, the negative perspective. Uh, when I say negative, I don't mean negative in the sense that it's, it's hard for us to hear it. It's just this is what not to do, essentially. This is a problem that we, that we see in Scripture through Jesus' day, uh, through all of Scripture, and it's a problem that we see today. Uh, and, and I think when we think about passages like this that call out false teaching, that call out hypocrisy, our mind may, you know, if you're like me, your, main, your mind may go to someone that you know that needs to hear this. Uh, but I think what we actually need to do is to do some self-examination and think about the areas in our own life where we may have weak or feeble faith, and that has led us to some disobedience within our own lives. So this is, uh, this is going to be one of those messages where we need to do some self-examination. And, and I believe it's, it's, it's helpful for us because 1 John 1.6 tells us, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You know, and, and a lot of times whenever we hear teachings on obedience, that we're called to obedience and to walk uh, and follow the commandments that God has given, a lot of times we, we may think to ourselves, well, I'm no longer under, under law, I'm under grace, and, and we try to separate our obedience to God's law from our identity in Christ. Uh, but Jesus doesn't give us that option, right? When, when Jesus speaks to us in his word, he tells us, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. In our passage today, he even says in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so I want to stress that point that as true disciples, we are to obey. And that kind of leads us to our sermon summary. 
and this is why I chose the term a good life. Uh, our sermon summary is this. The good life is a true disciple abiding in God's word. Right, last week we talked about a good death. Uh, this week we're talking about that life that leads to that good death. And that good life is the true disciple abiding in God's word. So as we break down this, this sermon, uh, we're going to have three points. First, we're going to focus, since it kind of goes back and forth, since it's a dialogue, we're going to first focus on Jesus' words. Then secondly, we're going to look at the Jews' response. And then I'm going to have some of my, my uh, parting thoughts, if you will, in, in our third point. Uh, but that's kind of how we're going to break this down for the sake of time. So let's go ahead and get into it. And like I said, we're going to focus on Jesus' words first. Uh, and throughout the passage, I tried to break it down as I was studying and I was trying to find, you know, pull particular things out of the passage. I find 11 claims that Jesus made through his, through his portion of the dialogue that speak to him and his word being the source of truth. Now, we're not going to cover all 11, uh, and there's potentially more depending on who's doing the study. But we're going to focus on, on uh, three of those things today. Uh, so we're going to start with verses 31 and 32. Let me reread those. They say this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, so those who he's speaking to are the Jews who had believed him. And he gave them, in, in this verse, he gave them a standard by which true disciples will live. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, what does it mean to abide? Uh, it's not a word that we probably use in our everyday language. But if you've seen the movie or if you've heard the phrase law-abiding citizen, that may kind of help you wrap your mind around what this word abide means. It's someone who obeys the law or lives within the parameters of the law. That's, that's essentially what the word abide means. You live within uh, what's, what's been commanded of. You're, you're living in obedience. Now, so when Jesus says, uh, and if we understand what that word means, it can kind of give us a poor perception of this verse since we're reading it with a if then statement, if you abide in my word, then you will be my disciple. Uh, it, it may kind of give us a poor perception on what it means to be a true disciple. Uh, and so what I want to point out here is that Jesus is not saying, if you abide in his word, this is the way you become a disciple. What he's actually saying is a true disciple is going to live a life of obedience. So another way to say that would be this. You are not a disciple because you obey. You obey because you are a disciple. That makes sense, right? So you're, you, you don't obey to become a disciple. If you're a disciple, you will obey the word of God. Now, why would I say that? If, if it looks clear that he's saying, if you abide, you're truly a disciple. Well, we know that we're not saved by our obedience, right? Grace is what has saved us, right? It is by grace we have been saved. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not, as a role, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? So those of us as true disciples, we have been saved by grace. Therefore, the true disciple will live a life that imitates Christ, that will walk in a manner worthy of the calling that's been given to us, will be known by our love for one, of an, for one another. All these things are true of true disciples. And all this truth is rooted in Christ, because it is him who sets us free. Now, I want to talk about that word free, right? When it says free, we've been granted this freedom in Christ, and it's not a freedom to just the gates wide open and we run and get to live how we want. 
That's not what true freedom is. Uh, what true freedom is, is walking in the freedom to do the things that I was created to do. Right? If we continue on in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, after we're told how we are saved, in verse 10, we are told why we were saved. It says, for, his, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepare, prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in them. That's what true freedom is. Right? True freedom is us as God's workmanship. Other translations say his handiwork, his masterpiece. Uh, we as, as that, his handiwork made by his own hands in obedience as a true disciple, I am able to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for me to walk in. That's what I was created for. There's, my purpose is now complete. That's, that's where true freedom is found. I, I kind of think of it this way, um, and I don't know why I'm not a, like a race car fan or anything, but it's the first thing that came to mind. Uh, imagine like a Formula One race car or a NASCAR stock car, and, and it just being parked in a garage and never being put out on a track, right? It just sits in the garage. Like that's, that, there's no freedom in that. It's, it's, it's guarded. It's free from the weather. It's never going to get um, weathered and flat tires because it's in a conditioned space. It's, it's, gonna, it's safe but it's not being used for its purpose. That's not true freedom. That's bondage, right? So we are created just like that to fulfill the calling that God has given us. That's true. That's true freedom for us to walk in. If we are his disciples, we abide in his word. We, we find what his word is and we walk in it. Now, another example we see of the uh, Jews and their disobedience, because these Jews are not understanding what his word is, we find in verse 43. Let me reread that verse. It says this, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, as I was studying through this passage and, and we see how this is, is written, uh, other translations kind of word this a little differently. And, and personally, just from my understanding, I, I think the NIV, the King James, the NASB, a lot of other translations have a, a better translation for this verse, simply because when I think of the word bear, it kind of makes me think of enduring. Right. They, it sounds like Jesus is saying you cannot endure to hear my word like it's just it's painful for you. But really what it is saying here that that word bear isn't found in the original language. It's more so saying you have no ability, no faculties to even hear what I'm saying. It's like you're you're deaf. Right. These words are going forth and they're just going one ear and out the other. So you cannot listen. There is no ability for you to listen. You have no desire or capability to receive the words that I'm giving you. And we know that this is true because he reiterates this just a couple of verses later, uh, a couple of verses later, excuse me, in verse 46 and 47, when he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear me, hear them, excuse me, is that you are not of God. Right. It's not that they can't bear to hear it, which they they can't, uh, but the, they just they don't hear it. They, they can't hear it. We go a couple of chapters later here in the Gospel of John, Jesus kind of rebuking the crowds again. He tells uh, the Jews, he tells them, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. But the Jews, they have no desire for him. They don't want to follow him. So what they do is they, they can't hear it. They can't hear what he has to say. Isaiah mentions this same thing when he commissions, um, I, when God commissions Isaiah, similar language is used here about the judgment that's placed on the Jewish leaders. Uh, he tells them this, they keep on hearing, but they do not understand. They keep on seeing, but they do not perceive. 
Now, why is that? It's because they are not true disciples, so they cannot and will not abide in the word of God. Now, next we see verse 51. This is another example of the, the shortcomings of the Jewish leaders of this day as Jesus' words goes forth. Uh, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Because just on a surface level reading from what we see from the response of the Jews, it's, it's kind of like, what do you mean no one will, you won't see death? Jesus, a, cu- a couple chapters later, he's going to see death. His apostles through the book of Acts and what we know through church history, they see death. Anyone that, that we have, that we've ever known that was a Christian saw death, right? So if we know people have seen death, and Jesus is saying that you, you will never see death, where is, is this a contradiction or what's actually going on here? Well, I think we find the meaning of that if we go back just a couple of chapters in John chapter 6, uh, we, we get a, a great example of what Jesus is speaking to here. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? He gathers all these crowds because the 5,000 was just the men Counting uh, women and children, there could have been 10, 15, 20,000 people there. And he had a lot of disciples during this time. There was a lot of disciples, that huge crowds that were following him. But then he openly rebukes them over the course of this chapter. And he gives them stern words where it even kind of makes the, the disciples cringe. Well, as he does this, by verse 66, we're told that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. By verse 67, he's, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go, as, go away as well? Verse 68, Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life. You have the words to eternal life. Right? So in you, we will never see death. Right? All of us, this body will expire at some point in time, but our soul will live on forever, forever either in eternal damnation or an everlasting life. This is what Jesus is referring to, right? In Jesus' death, when he conquered sin and death on the cross, was buried, raised to newness of life, showing his power, death was swallowed up in victory. As uh, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Right? It's been, it's been eradicated. It's been removed once and for all. Jesus paid that death for us with him, we were buried and we were raised to newness of life. This spirit that we now have as his people is, will live forever. We'll live forever with him. It is a beautiful thing to understand what Jesus is telling us here. It's, yeah, this life is temporary, of course. We're all going to experience death unless he comes back for us uh, before that time. But we will never see eternal death, right? We, we have no reason to fear man. Man could only harm this body, but this soul belongs to God. This is what Jesus is talking about. And I kind of think about, I've been listening to this book, John Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it's, a, it's, it's hard to listen to, uh, listening to the way Christians have been brutalized and, and tormented and persecuted throughout church history. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a terrible thing to, to hear that. Uh, but when you think about how these people went to their death and how some of them were singing praises to God and, and even... I've even heard of some where they were before their executioners and they're 
saying that this is to the glory of God, these executioners lay down their instruments of death to kill them and kneel down beside them because they want to serve this king that, that has changed their life in such a dramatic way that th this, this weapon that they use has no power over them. They, they have life. There's no reason for them to fear this death. It, it is a, a beautiful thing. Being in that moment, I'm sure, is, is frightening. And for your family, it's tragic. But to, to know that you're in the hand of a loving God, there, there's nothing more beautiful than that. that. That's seeing life and seeing it everlasting. It, it, is a, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And for some of us here, if we've had family members that have gone on to glory, we know what it's like being around that if we were given this opportunity to be around their deathbed, right? And, and being Christians around other Christians who are passing to glory, it's bittersweet, but it's, it's beautiful. I, if you've ever experienced that, it is... It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing knowing that they're going to be with their Lord. Like, it's, it's almost like a, a jealousy because it's like you get to see Christ face to face. Like, I, I'm still in this body wasting away day by day, but you get to go to glory. It, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely hard on one side, but you, you, we have that peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing that we are in the hands of a loving Father. But this is what Jesus is speaking of here. He's saying, truly, truly. If you keep my words, you will never see death. It is a, a beautiful, beautiful thing that we see in these verses. And these Jews just, they, they couldn't see it. They just, they couldn't wrap their minds around the words of God. So now let's look at their responses to the word of God. Jesus is speaking to them. He's proclaiming who he is. He's performing miracles before these men. And it's just falling on deaf ears. But let's look at a couple of their responses as Jesus rebukes them for their hypocrisy. Um, we're going to look at two of them in particular, and then we're going to see one of their responses in light of the things that Jesus said. And one thing that I want to point out before we go any further, in these verses, what we can see from the Jewish response is where their faith is found, right? If, if they're being called out for a counterfeit faith, for a fake faith, a faith that is not founded in Christ, five times in these verses they plead with Jesus telling them that their defense for why they are God's people is because their father's Abraham, right? We're offspring of Abraham. That's why we're saved, right? That, that's just like us today saying, well, I grew up in a Baptist church, right? Growing up in a Baptist church or attending a Baptist church or serving or, or preaching, none of those things is what saves us, right? That, if we're considering this obedience like we already discussed, none of that saves you. You're going to present these things before God, and he's going to call them filthy rags. Right? That, that's what that is, because we're either saved by faith in Christ or we're deemed to a life of eternal hell because we've had faith in ourselves, and we're a guilty sinner in need of, of God's mercy. Right? That's, those are the only two options, so I kind of got ahead of myself. But this is, this is where the Jews went wrong. This is how their response went. Like, we're sons of Abraham. There's, there's never been an issue with us. So... So let's look at that. Verse 33 is the first response to uh, verses 31 and 32 when Jesus gives us this beautiful verse of saying, if you are truly my disciples, uh, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right. I mean, th that that sounds fantastic to the ears of the converted. Right. To God's people. Amen. We can amen that. Right. That that you set us free. But let's look at the Jews, uh, the Jewish leaders response in these verses. And these are people who we just read in verse 31, were the ones who believed in him, right? They had this intellectual belief, but
but it hadn't made its way to a change of heart. They had this grasp that, you know, it maybe what you're saying is true, you know, who you are is kind of whatever, but when, when their idols were pressed, you know, them being of the bloodline of, of Isaac, Abraham, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when their idols were pressed, then their true colors truly showed. So let's look at verse 33. It says this, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Right? They're not even worried about being true disciples, being set free, being having this freedom in Christ. They're like, hold on, you just said we're slaves? We ain't never been slaves. And on the surface, as we read this, you know, if you know anything about Old Testament, about Jewish, you know, Jews in the first century, you know that they were actually enslaved to the Romans. You know, during this time, they were under Roman captivity. Before that, the Greeks, before that, Babylonians, the Assyrians, and even if you go back to Exodus, the Egyptians, right? The, the, the history of the Jews, of the Hebrew people, has been riddled with slavery, right? There's been this physical captivity of the people of, of God uh, to slavery. And so on the surface, we may look at the, the response and say, these guys are just delusional for the fact that they think that they've never been enslaved. They've always been enslaved. But what we see from Jewish writings and history from this time, the thought is not so much a political or a physical bondage as much a, as a spiritual bondage. They always felt, you know, you may in, in, entrap this body, but my body, I mean, my mind and soul is, is God's. I'm, we're God's holy people. We're a holy nation, chosen, a royal priesthood. You can never take this, this soul. You can have this body, but you can never take this soul. So that was the, the attitude, right, of the Jewish people. Right, mentally, you can never enslave us. But little did they know, their sins are what enslave them. So they were never truly free. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's kind of easy to look at them and say, y'all are these pitiful people, what's wrong with y'all? But if you do any reading through the, New, through the, through the Old Testament of the history of the, the Israelites, it's us. It's us in everyday life. If, if our lives were documented uh, from, from birth until today, we're, we're going to look no different than the Jews. I mean, uh, spiritually, uh, we commit sins just like when we turn to idols. We, we do all this stuff. So we're just like them. So I want to make sure to point that out and not make it sound like they're worse people than us. We're just like them, uh, apart from God's mercy in our lives. But that's where they are, right? They, they don't understand that they're blinded to their own sin, and so they're saying, hey, we're, we've never been enslaved, um, you know, to, to anybody. This is just uh, ridiculous in their eyes. They, they're just like, what, what's wrong with you? We, we are not this kind of people. <clears throat> uh, but, yeah, so essentially that's, that's where their focus was, was on this, this external thing and, and that they've never, they've never been enslaved. And one thing as I was reading through this and that I kind of thought about with myself is, you know, as we're doing good things and, and we're walking by the spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh, we're walking in obedience, we're serving, we're reading our Bible. When things are going well in the Christian life, you know, we're, we're, we're running on all cylinders. Oftentimes we can kind of get caught up in, in that life and say, well, I, I can check off all these boxes. I'm doing well. Uh, and the second we start doing that, that's when we start veering. And then we get caught up, excuse me, in our own good works. And then we lose sight of what, what, what's truly important. That's when we start to stumble. Uh, I, I believe that is a, a crucial thing for us as we're kind of guarding this outside, these externals, right? I'm not going to, 
I'm not going to drink or smoke or cuss, you know, and I'm, when I get in front of people, I'm going to smile and say good morning and, and mark off all these things. The, the heart is where the, the fruit of all this stuff comes out. Uh, so this is what's most important. The Jews miss that, right? They miss that. The heart was enslaved, right? Pastors mentioned this multiple times, and it's a quote from John Calvin. Our hearts are an idol factory. I mean, that's all they do. They just produce idols. I mean, it, it, we can be addicted to one thing and then turn around and, well, like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, uh, you know, eat, eat sweets anymore. And then your addiction now is exercise or coffee or, or, you know, watching TV, you know, popcorn. Like, you just switch from one thing to another. You're, you're not addressing the issue that your heart is still yearning to be filled by something and you're giving it to something else. Uh, so th this is the problem with the Jews, right? They, they have this understanding, well, we've never been enslaved, but we have to, have to examine ourselves. When God speaks to us through his word, we need to use that word to filter, to examine, to shine light on our hearts, or we'll end up just like the Jews are. Well, I'm not enslaved. I'm, I've been reading my Bible. Why is this happening to me? I've been praying and spending time in the word, and, you know, and, and, and we, get, we get sidetracked with that. But this is, this is where we end up whenever we end up just like the Pharisees, and that's, that's all of us. Next, we're going to see their response to what he said in verse 51, what we read earlier. This is in verses 52 and 53. It says this, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. And let me go back to, to verse 51. Let me read what that, I'm going to read 51 through 53. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now, this is another statement Jesus makes instead of taking it in, uh, processing it, filtering it, filtering their life through what he is saying. They're just rejecting it as false and ridiculous. It was crazy enough in the minds of these Jews to believe that Jesus was demon possessed. Now, we may hear that and kind of, you know, we, have, we may have a weird view of, of demon possession. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I think um, my wife and I had a conversation about this during the week, and I think we kind of, we've let Hollywood determine our theology on demon possession. And so we end up with this only if they have a green face and they spew vomit and their head spins, that's a demon possession. Uh, but in all reality, uh, uh, for a demon to possess someone, they're controlling their actions. And so what are they going to do? They're going to control their actions in a false way, not in a godly way. And so that can play itself out in false teaching uh, as the Jews were trying to uh, project upon Christ. It can play itself out in promiscuity, drug addiction, uh, any kind of addiction, right? Uh, in the gospel, we see uh, an example of a, a young man that was mute due to a, a demon possessing him, and that demon was rebuked and removed. So demon possession has a wide range of of, of, of actions, right? But we tend to think of it as like just the, the crazy guy who was chained up and cutting himself. It's a, it's a wide range of things. So that's a little side note. But that's something that I think we need to think of because modern day people think, well, you know, are the people being possessed here now? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, if what we see here, the Jews recognize a false teaching could potentially be a demon possession. Um, and I think we, we should consider that as well today. But he goes on from there. The Jews go on from there, not only saying that he was a demon, uh, but they, they kind of end this phrase with, who do you make yourself out to be? Right. That's kind of like, well, who do you think you are? Like, who gave you the right to say these things? Abraham died. The prophets died. All of us will experience death. 
But as we already said, they cannot hear what God is truly saying to them in this time. They cannot see or understand or perceive what's, what's, what is really being spoken of to them. They are not true disciples, therefore their minds are confused. Uh, their hearts are dull, their, their ears are dull, their hearts are, are, are still dead in their sins. These are not true disciples and they cannot grasp the truth of God uh, in the flesh speaking to them. These words that Jesus spoke became a stumbling block to them is, is essentially what happened. Now, these were, the, these were two of the responses that we see from the Jews in these verses. Um, and now what I want to do is kind of focus on a third response based on something Jesus said that we didn't cover in, in Jesus's response. So we're going to get a little twofer here, if you will. Uh, so let me, re, let me read verses 57 through 59. It says this, So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, what's going on here? You know, Jesus saying, I am, if, if you're kind of unfamiliar with that term, uh, you may kind of wonder, like, why, why, why was that the tipping point? Why was that the straw that broke the camel's back? Um, but, you know, because the Jews are trying to say, you're, you're a 30-year-old man. You're not even 50 yet. How... Abraham lived hundreds, you know, maybe a thousand years ago, a little over a thousand years ago, and, and you're telling us, you know, this about Abraham, and, and, and he's dead. Um, so their, their refute, refutation of Jesus' claims is based on his age, but Jesus' response to them is not based on those claims, but based on his divinity, right? Jesus is saying, they're saying, uh, excuse me, they're saying that, that, that he's, he's not even 30 years old, and he's saying, I don't, ultimately, I don't have an age. Eternally, I was always here. So Jesus is, is saying, instead of, you know, if we were to reword what he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, it could be also said this way, I am before Jesus was. Abraham existed for a time, but Jesus created time and therefore trans, uh, transcends time, Right? Um, this phrase, I am, that's used to kind of touch back on that, this is used throughout the Old Testament, and typically the way it's translated is Yahweh, uh, Lord God, Jehovah, I am who I am. Uh, it's used that way in, in Exodus 3. This is the covenantal name of God, right? So as we see this phrase used in the New Testament, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the door, when he says here, before Abraham was, I am, this is Jesus using the covenantal name of God. He's, he's equating himself with God. So the Jews would have recognized this, and this is why they sought to kill him. This is why they wanted to pick up the stones. When they heard him equating himself with God, this was the greatest form of blasphemy, considering they thought he was demon-possessed, he, he, he was no God, to claim that he was God, that was blasphemy. That was, that was capital punishment was, was due to him. Now, with this, there's, there's a lot more in our passage, and I wish we had a couple of days, hours to go over this, but we don't have that kind of time. I respect y'all too much for that. Um, but what I want to say this is, is Jesus in the flesh, face to face with these men, calling out their sins, pointing them to who he is, all this stuff that I mean, he's quoting scripture, he's performing miracles. They see him. They see exactly what he's saying. All of this 
was done before them. They were left without excuse, and they still left there with an unchanged heart. Right? This wasn't enough for them. And now what I am not saying uh, with that is that Jesus' work before them was ineffective. What I am saying with that is that this was the intended purpose in rebuking the Pharisees, to point out their false faith, their counterfeit faith, their hypocrisy. That was God's, that was, this was Jesus' intention. God only did what the fathers, uh, Jesus only did what the fathers intended for him to do while he walked this earth. So this interaction, if it wasn't to save these men, it was to condemn, condemn them where they stood, pointing out the fallacies within them. That was the intention here. And so what I want to encourage us as we think about this, if Jesus in the flesh wasn't enough to change these men's heart, when it comes to us evangelizing, this is the method that we take, right? We use God in his word to to evangelize the lost. We don't need to go beyond what is written in God's word. Now, are there ways that we can use God's word to implement different programs and ministries and different things like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But our intention is to stay focused on God and his word whenever we reach the lost. It is never, never a good idea uh, as we are trying to seek and save the lost through the preaching of his word to go outside of his word, to, to add to his word. We, we preach the truths or the principles of God's word to the lost because the word is what is the power to God to salvation for all who believe. Right. First the Jew and then the Greek. That's that's where the power lies is in his word. So as we are hurting, as we are suffering, as, as we are evangelizing, as we're preaching from the pulpit, as we are trying to minister to each other, it should all be focused or rooted in God's word. That, that's, that's the, this is where the perp, this is where the hope, uh, this is where comfort, this is where everything is found for us, is, is in God's word. And so I, I just wanted to touch on that briefly uh, so we understand when someone's in pain and suffering, well, I don't, I don't know the words to share with them. Give them God's word. Right. Well, I don't know what to say whenever I see this brother or sister caught in sin. Show them God's word. Right. I don't know what to do with this person that that, you know, I've been trying to minister to them and nothing seems to work. You know, I've tried to live my life right. I've tried to be a good example. Give them God's word. Right. God's word is what's going to change their hearts. So as we we see Jesus's responses or his words, we see the Jewish response to his words we get to our final point, which is me trying to keep this uh, timely with some of some parting thoughts, my final thoughts right on on what we are saying. And I want to go back to God's word. Second Timothy two, uh, excuse me, second Timothy three, 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. Psalm one, uh, excuse me, Psalm nineteen, verses ten and eleven says this: More that God's speaking of God's word, it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by the word, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, this is this is what God's word is for us. And there's so many other scriptures that speak to God's word for us. But I believe we need to understand the treasure that is found in God's word. Like that is so crucial for us as God's people. God has spoken to us 
through his word. I don't know if we stress that enough. God has spoken, and these words were written down for us, to know who God is. We cannot treat God's word as a task on a checklist to sign off on. We should be delighting in his word. Scripture tells us in his presence there is fullness of joy. Right? That's where we find joy, in his presence, communing with him, in his word, reading, talking about his word with the believers, sharing his word to comfort those in times of, of trouble, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn. That is how we delight in God's word, making it every part of our lives. The joy of the Lord is, is our strength. I mean, it's, it's all of this is all God's word. It, it, is, it is so, so uh, needed in the life of the believer. So in closing, I kind of want to ask a couple of questions and kind of point us back to God and his word. So the first question is this, how can you find God's word profitable, desirable, or sweet if you are not spending time in his word? Right, how can we do that? It, it, we, we can think, man, I, you know, I, I need to make more time for God's word. I need to do this. I need to do that. Then do it. Do it. There's there really nothing stopping you. There's too much technology out right now for us not to spend time in God's word. There's audio Bibles on the phone. You can read it. You can listen to it. There's YouTube videos with scripture. There's, just, there's too many options for us uh, to not spend time in God's word. As, as the scripture tells us in this passage, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, even in just day-to-day -day application, there, it is so freeing to know God's word, to know him through his word. Whenever you're struggling with something, uh, a tragedy, a, a, whatever it is, there is so much freedom in knowing God's word, being able to go to this treasure chest of God's word that you've hidden in your heart so that you don't sin against him to be nourished and comforted and, and to be encouraged by his word. If you don't have it, if it's empty, there's, if there's nothing there, it's really difficult to get beyond those things and you're going to need the body to come in and share those scriptures with you. Uh, but I, I can't stress that enough how, how, how much freedom there is in knowing God in his word. So with that, the, the challenge today is if this is not you, and or you believe you've lost that desire. If you're like, man, I, you know, time has gone by. I've focused on these things, and and yeah, I need to get back. Today is the day, right? Today is the day for us to focus back on God and His Word. There's not another day to wait. Don't wait. Put it off till tomorrow. Today is the day. Uh, God has placed us here to hear His Word, to respond to it, and to find joy in Him, to find salvation in him to be freed from the guilt that we all carry around from all the things that we've done that ultimately are sins against God. Uh, that is where we find ourselves today. And I want to encourage you with God's word in light of that. First John 1 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? As we said earlier, the good life is a true disciple abiding in God's word. You cannot get there without repentance of sin and faith in Christ who will set you free from those sins. Let us pray.